so good to be with you all this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 1, continuing in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, if you want to find your place there. We'll also have the text on the screen, but we'll keep on coming back to this passage. So I really want you to be able to find your your place there. I want you to see for yourself what God is saying to us here this morning. Because here's the connection. Here's the connection that I know this church loves. If we're going to look up and worship God this morning, we need to first look down and hear from God this morning. So find yourself in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. Uh, As you find your place there, Lee and I want to thank you all for the hospitality you've shown us here this week. It has been a a sweet week with you all. Uh, We're particularly encouraged as you all think about and you pray and you seek the Lord of I may step into this role as an assistant pastor here at the church. As you all pray about that, it's been an encouragement to Leah and myself that if we were to come here, we would be parenting in community. That we would be parenting in community along with your help. Because if we come here, we need your wisdom. (laughs) We need your wisdom as we parent Jane and Bo. It's a super fun season, but there are lots of challenges. Lots of challenges that we would need your help with. Uh, One of the recent challenges that Leah and I have had um, have been with Jane, and it's revolved around making and keeping promises. She's really great with making promises right now. Not as much keeping them. Mommy, if I jump in the puddle, my feet won't get wet. I promise. (laughs) Daddy, I won't eat the chocolate, just want to touch the chocolate. I promise. It's not very realistic. (laughs) It's sweet, but I'm skeptical of that promise. That was Zachariah's response to God's promises, wasn't it? As you all have been studying, if you remember from Pastor Jeff's message a couple weeks ago, he looked at the promises of God and he doubted them, right? Him and his wife Elizabeth had been struggling with infertility for years. They had pretty much resigned themselves to the fact that they're just not going to have any children. Zacharias actually so resigned himself to this fact that an angel sent from God can't convince him otherwise, right? The angel Gabriel comes from God, and he says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and his name is going to be John. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. What's Zechariah's response? It's great intentions, God, but I'm skeptical. It's not very realistic, It's so easy to poke fun at Zachariah. But I don't know about you, I totally relate to that and how I respond to the promises of God. Caleb, I'm going to cast your sin into the sea. I'm going to remove your sin from the east, from the west. 
Caleb, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Really? Not once? Not even when I sin, God? It's great intentions. But isn't that unrealistic? That's sweet, but I'm skeptical. I think you all can relate. Zachariah, you, me, all of God's people, we hear the promises of God with varying degrees of doubt, don't we? We have faith, but there are varying degrees of doubt in this room this morning. Here's the good news. You ready for some good news this morning? God's promises are not dependent on us, but upon God. And when God delivers a promise, he delivers on that promise every single time. That's good news. And that's the news of our passage this morning. So if you found yourself in Luke 1, verse 57, we will begin there, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew 
and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. I think the main idea of our passage and of the sermon this morning is this. God has delivered and will deliver on every promise. So depend on him and his promises. Again, I think the main idea of this text this morning is this. God has delivered and will deliver on every promise. So depend on him and his promises. We'll just take this main idea and break it up into two points this morning. Point number one will be promises delivered on, verses 57 through 62. Point number two will be promises depended on, verses 63 through 80. Point number one, promises delivered on. That's what happens, doesn't it, in our passage. God delivers on the promises he's made earlier in chapter one. Verses 57 through 66 are just chock full of promises that God delivers on. In verse 13, God promises that Zechariah will have a son. And despite Zechariah's doubt, in verse 57, Zechariah has a son. In verse 20, God promises that John the Baptist will be born at the right time. And despite Zechariah's doubt, in verse 57, the time came. In verse 14, God promises that many will rejoice at his birth. And despite Zechariah's doubt, what does verse 58 say? And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. In verse 13, God promises that Zechariah will call his son John. And despite Zechariah's doubt, in verse 63, Elizabeth and Zechariah call their son John. In verse 14, God promises that Zechariah will have joy and gladness. And despite Zechariah's doubt, in verse 64, Zechariah blesses God. Zechariah's doubt makes him mute. But his doubt does not interfere with, does not corrupt, does not slow down God's promises. Christian, the same goes for you. Our unbelief is serious. It's not anything to mess around with. Just ask Zachariah. He'd tell you. If you mess around with unbelief, you may just have to learn sign language for nine months. Apart from faith, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, it's impossible to please God. And we're left in our sins, deserving God's wrath. But brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, if you've trusted in Christ alone, The blessing of the gospel does not rise and fall on your shifting faith. No, it's, it's fixed. Fixed in the perfect work of Christ on your behalf. Your extra faith can't add to the blessing, and your waning faith cannot subtract from the blessing. I don't know about you, but I need that in this Advent season. 
I need that because I relate to that father in Mark 9. I believe in the incarnation. I think I really do, genuinely. But I need help with my unbelief. I need the Lord to help me with my unbelief. Can anyone relate to that this morning? We've all got a little Zachariah doubt in us, don't we? We believe that God the Son took on flesh to save us from our sins, but we don't believe like we want to. We want to believe more. And it's good and it's right to want to believe more, to have more dependence on the promises of God. We need more faith. We need more belief. We'll get there in a minute. But here's the deal. If we're ever going to depend on the promises of God, we need to know that God will deliver on his promises whether we have strong faith, whether we have weak faith. Did you get that? If we're ever going to depend on the promises of God, we need to know that God will deliver on his promises whether we have strong faith or whether we have weak faith. It's not up to us. It's up to God. If God delivers a promise, he will deliver on his promise. Not him and your dependence. Not him and your repentance. No, God and God alone delivers on his promises. Some of y'all have made fun of me of how much I talk about coffee. Some of y'all made fun of me for that this week, but here we go. I'm going to give you a coffee application. Get coffee with members in this church and encourage each other with these truths. We need these truths. Fill up the Starbucks and Palm Beach County with conversations about the faithfulness of God. Ask each other, how has God kept his promises to you recently? Share with each other how God has kept his promises to you despite your doubt. Moms and dads, as you lead your kids in family devotions or whatever you all call it, share with them how you have been unfaithful to God but God has been so faithful to you. And as y'all remind others about God's faithfulness, don't forget to remind yourselves of his faithfulness to you in this Advent season. Friends, your shifting faith can't undo, can't corrupt, can't alter, can't mess up the blessings of God becoming a man. Christ sympathizing with us in our weaknesses. Christ taking the punishment for our sins. Christ being our perfect righteousness before the Father. All these blessings and more are yours. Secure. They're all secure. You can't mess it up. You cannot mess it up. Your inability to mess up God's promises. Friends, if that will land on you, when that lands on you, that's when you can start depending on the promises of God. When you recognize that God will deliver on his promises with or without your strong faith, that's when your faith will rise. 
That's what happened for Zechariah, right? We don't know when his doubt turned to dependence. Maybe it was when Elizabeth got morning sickness. He was like, oh man, <laughs> it's happening. Maybe it was during Mary's visit and he overheard Mary and Elizabeth talking about their boys. Maybe it wasn't until John was finally born and Elizabeth puts her foot down and says, no, we're calling him John. Maybe it was a gradual process and it took all those things. But at some point it dawns on Zechariah. God is delivering on his promises, with or without me. And that realization creates a newfound, radical, totally realistic dependence on the promises of God. Point number two of the sermon this morning is promises depended on. Verse 63 is beautiful, isn't it? With a whole crowd inquiring about what Zechariah is going to call his son, pressuring him to call him Zechariah, what does Zechariah do? He asks for something to write with and then writes four words. His name is John. What a transformation! Nine months before, he was overwhelmed with doubt. And now he's overflowing with dependence on the promises of God. <laughs> Makes me want to call our third child John. Be a bit unconventional if it ends up being a baby girl, but you know. Build character in her. What do you think? Uh, Johnetta? Johnella? I don't know. Maybe not. What a moment in verse 63, though. What a moment. And it just gets better in verse 64. After Zechariah obeys, immediately his mouth was opened and tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. To the man whose doubt silenced him, God gives a song of faith. And in verse 68, he also gives them the lyrics. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can draw a line from verse 64 all the way down to verse 68, circling the word blessing in verse 64 down to the word blessed in verse 68. Do you see how the content of the blessing in verse 64 is shared with us in verses 68 through 79? When Zechariah opens his mouth and speaks blessing to God, filled with the Holy Spirit, the lyrics in verses 68 through 79 are what come out. And this song goes viral. <laughs> it goes viral. Verses 65 through 66. The neighbors hear the song and fear spreads. Word makes its way up into the hills of Judea. In verse 66, everyone is talking about John's future plans, asking each other, did you hear about that John kid? And what about that song? Did you hear the whole song? Judea goes crazy. What was it, though, about this song that gets everyone riled up? What happened in verses 68 through 79 that sparks a widespread 
commotion. Funny enough, it actually has very little to do with Zechariah. It actually has very little to do with Elizabeth. It has very little to do with actually their son, John. John gets like two verses in this prophecy. And even those verses aren't really about him. As we'll see in a moment, they're about someone else. What was it about John that sparked such a reaction? Why was everyone pointing to John? It was because of who John was pointing to. Zechariah knew who came after John. With the words of the angel Gabriel in verse 17 still ringing in Zechariah's ears, that John would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. With all that in mind, Zechariah knew that the last two verses of your Old Testament were happening. They were finally happening. Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. After hundreds of years of waiting, after political turmoil, after miscarriages, after fighting, after years of heartbreak, God had sent Elijah the prophet. And that meant the awesome day of the Lord was coming. And that meant that salvation was coming. Why did everyone race around in fear in Judea? Because God was coming, and he was bringing salvation with him. Everyone freaked out about John, because John gave away the surprise. He gloriously, gloriously gave away God's gift of salvation. It's like John was the, the first tear in the wrapping paper. And just a peek. Zachariah just sees just a peek. And he knows what's coming. Told Zachariah exactly what was under the rest of the wrapping paper. The fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. And that's why in verses 68 through 79, we see Zechariah tearing through the wrapping paper of the Old Testament. He's just ripping it to shreds, going to one promise after another, uncovering promise after promise. The Davidic covenant in verse 69, the major and minor prophets in verse 70. Then he goes back to the Abrahamic covenant in verse 73, jumps back up to Isaiah's prophecy of John the Baptist in verse 76. He finishes with Isaiah's, Isaiah 9-2's expectation of a great light in verse 79. Filled with the Holy Spirit, and speaking for the first time in months, Zechariah unloads promise after promise after promise that he's waiting for God to deliver on. Promises that Zechariah is now depending on. As you may have noticed, these promises traverse the whole biblical story. The prophecy is a mini-biblical theology 
and we'd be here until Christmas if we spent enough time to go through all of it. I made some of y'all nervous. Don't worry. (laughs) By God's grace, I think the Spirit kindly organized Zachariah's excitement and eruption of biblical inferences into three headings for us. Three overarching promises of salvation for us to depend on in this Advent season. Three promises. First we'll look at is salvation from oppression. Salvation from oppression. We see that in verses 68 through 73. Grounding his prophecy in the Davidic covenant and passages like Psalm 89 verse 24. Referring back to prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Drawing on the Abrahamic covenant passages like Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 22.17. Zechariah paints an absolute picture of salvation. It's absolute salvation from the enemies of God and his people. The salvation is total. It's final. And considering the present tyranny of Rome and the present corruption within the Jewish religious system, I find super interesting and massively encouraging. With Rome's foot firmly on the neck of God's people, and John just a baby, and Jesus still in Mary's belly, how does, I, uh, how does Zachariah start his prophecy? How does he start it? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Did you catch the verb tense there? Redeemed his people. Past tense. Under present tense subjugation, Zachariah uses past tense language to talk about future deliverance. With his team down by 30 in the fourth quarter, Zachariah orders the championship trophies. That's bold dependence on the promises of God. You may be rightly wondering, though, didn't the Roman soldiers crucify Jesus? Didn't Rome, God's enemies, persecute the church? And what about today? What about martyrs of the faith today? And what about insults you receive today from God's enemies? How do those realities square with the promise that God will save his people from all oppression? Remember, it's total. It's complete. It's final. Those are good questions. Good questions. And I think our answer comes from understanding the two comings of the Messiah. The nature of his first coming and the nature of his second coming, which the old covenant prophets didn't quite understand at the time. That hadn't been revealed to them. The Old Testament prophets, and I think maybe including Zechariah here, thought that when the Messiah came, he would just come once. There weren't two separate comings in their minds as they looked forward to the coming of the promised one. Which is maybe helpful in explaining why when you're reading like Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah, 
There's sometimes in your reading sections that are like, oh, this is totally relevant to today. And then there's other sections that you're like, I don't, that doesn't make sense with my present day experience. Have you ever felt that when you're reading the prophets? You read passages like Isaiah 11.5 and reading about righteousness shall be on the belt of the Messiah's waist. You're like, okay, I get that. That's Jesus. That's happened. But then just a few verses later, Isaiah is talking about babies playing with cobras. Some of you moms are thinking, no way. (laughs) That's not happening anytime soon. What's happening here? I think an illustration may help. You may have heard this before. Theologians have described uh, this illustration of mountain ranges. And when the Old Covenant prophets were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, they just saw one peak. That's all they saw. But then as we move in the biblical story and we make our way up to Calvary, as we make our way to the cross, to the resurrection, what do we find? We find there's always been another mountain peak right on the other side. The Old Covenant prophets didn't see it. They were below the cross. They couldn't see over. But once we make it up to the cross, we see another coming of the Messiah, a second coming. I think that's what Zechariah is prophesying here about salvation from all oppression. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. We know this from the Bible. We also know it from our own experience. We live in a fallen world now. We're still waiting. We're waiting for complete salvation from oppression. Boynton Beach is beautiful. We found that out this week. But it has mosquitoes. And humidity. There's so much, so much worse things happening here, I know. I know each of you have experienced chronic oppression. Chronic oppression from God's enemies. Regular confusion, maybe from your unbelieving friends or your unbelieving family about your faith. Some of you have experienced acute oppression. Slander and insults that are not justified. I'm not even mentioning the demonic forces and Satan's hateful accusations. We live under constant, regular oppression from God's enemies as we wait for the second coming. But one day, one day, We will see Jesus. Amen. And when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. There won't be any more oppression. No more shame. No more gossip. No more slander. No more condemnation from the devil. No more enemies of God or his people. No more oppression. And no more disobedience. There'll be salvation from disobedience. That's the second promise we'll look at in verses 74, 75. Salvation from disobedience. There won't be any more disobedience. Only obedience. Only serving God without fear. You see, that's the the purpose of the salvation from 
God's enemies. It's the purpose clause. The highlight. Verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. While sin has had a decisive blow, and while it's lost its hold on us, Romans 6, we can freely now choose to obey God. We still have indwelling sin, don't we? Romans 7 is right around the corner from Romans 6. And we struggle with indwelling sin. One day we won't. One day we won't struggle anymore with indwelling sin. After all of God's enemies are finally subdued, we won't struggle with any more sin. Can you imagine? No more struggle with sin. That sin that just doesn't seem to go away. It won't be there anymore. No more hesitation to obey the Lord. There won't be a second pause. We'll immediately want to obey the Lord. As you're aware of your sin this week, as Satan accuses you of your sin, remind yourself Remind Satan that salvation is coming. It's coming. It's as good as done. God has redeemed you. Like Zechariah, you can use past tense victory language for present tense tyranny. You can use it. Use it. After this week, I know some of you feel like you're just right in the thick of things. You feel like sin is oppressing you. Some of y'all feel like you're down by 30 in the fourth quarter. In the first quarter, you gave up like four layups. In the second quarter, you didn't box out. In the third quarter, you airballed every shot. You're down by 30 in the fourth quarter. Friends, order the championship trophies. Order the trophies. Order the crowns you'll present before the Lord when you get to heaven. And show Satan the invoice that Christ has already paid. Show him the blood of Christ that has bought your future glorification. Friends, we depend on the future promise of glorification because God has already saved us from our worst enemy, ourselves. The third promise that we are going to look at, and not the last one, is that there is salvation from ourselves. Verses 76 through 79. Because of sin, we need to be saved from ourselves more than anything. This is what John the Baptist is preparing God's people for, salvation from themselves. We could be delivered from every enemy. But if we're not delivered from ourselves, not delivered from our own sin, then we're just counting down the days until eternal judgment. Until we stand before the eternal judge. And him in all of his holiness will see us in all of our unholiness. And I don't know about you, but that won't turn out well for me if that's the case. It's not going to turn out well. 
in the presence of a holy and just God, we all stand condemned. But God is not just holy. He is not just just. He is also merciful. Moved by tender mercy, God came to offer us forgiveness from our sins. Isn't that what the text says? The promised one, Jesus Christ, offers to take the punishment for all of your sin. Nailing your judgment to the cross. And he offers you all the blessings of his sinless life. Allowing you to walk in the light of his love and peace. The sunrise, the light of the world. Jesus Christ died in darkness so you might live in light. you're not a Christian you don't have to sit in darkness anymore there's a light to step into the light of Christ you don't have to hide your sin in darkness masking your sin with religious hypocrisy Jesus sees all your sin and he can forgive those sins freeing you to walk in light You don't have to plunge into deeper darkness, searching for pleasure on the internet. Jesus has everything you need, and he will satisfy you in the light of his presence. You don't have to fear evil in the valley of the shadow of death, groping in the darkness of your own wisdom, searching for peace. Jesus is with you, and he will comfort you, illuminating the way to peace. You don't have to sit in darkness anymore, friend. Step out into the light of Jesus Christ. He can save you even from yourself. And you don't have to wait on that promise. No. God has already delivered on that promise, hasn't he? So first point, depend on his promises. Depend on God and his promises. Meditate on them. Talk about them. Depend on them. And as you depend on them, remember, remember the first point. He will deliver on his promises whether you depend on them or not. I love the way our passage ends. Verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. When I first read that, it just seemed like a a historical anecdote. It seemed superfluous. Okay, John got older. Awesome. Let's get to the birth of Jesus. Let's get to Christmas already. But I think Luke is actually throwing us his best punch here. After Zechariah's prophecy and all the promises that are in it, I think Luke knew, knew that Theophilus, the guy he's writing this gospel for, may be wondering, Luke, those are a lot of promises. They're going to happen? Is God going to deliver on these promises that you're talking about? Is this true? And Luke, somewhat, I don't know, somewhat understatably, but unmistakably powerfully answers Theophilus' question, doesn't he? 
the end of verse 79, he throws him a historical left hook in verse 80. Yes, Theophilus, all these things are true. Just look. John the Baptist is becoming strong in spirit, just like God said he would. God has delivered, and he will deliver on every promise. So depend on him, Theophilus. Depend on him and his promises. Friends, you can depend too. God has delivered on every single promise he's ever made to you. Anything that can be delivered on, he's already done it, is doing it, and he will do it as we wait for his second coming. Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve any of that. Father, we have just sinned against you over and over and over again. We deserve judgment. We deserve for you to pour out your wrath on us. Father, thank you for your tender mercy. Father, thank you that you looked at us in our sin and you fulfilled your promise to send the Messiah, your Son, Jesus Christ. And he has finished his work. It is finished. Father, help us look to that historical reality, the perfect life and death of Christ and his resurrection as we look to his birth this upcoming week. And eventually as we look to his second coming. In your son's name, amen.